If you would, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. Um, I know Kenneth is in the book of Mark, and he's going to get to chapter 5. I'm going to do the whole book, uh, the whole chapter of Mark chapter 5 in one 30-minute sermon, all right? <laughs> Kenneth is going to take two years to get through Mark chapter 5. <laughs> but he'll do a much better job. He'll detail all the stuff that I miss out today. So... Um, we're grateful for that. And by the way, if you're a guest of ours, thank you for being here. My name is Rick Swing. I'm the executive pastor. And every six to eight weeks, we try to get Kenneth to take a Sunday off. Uh, nobody knows how difficult it is to be a senior pastor and also have to preach three times on a Sunday morning. I know what you think. You think, hey, by the third service, pe- preacher ought to have it down. This is the toughest service, I want you to know. It's much tougher than the 830. I mean, I'm raring to go at 830. I'm ready to take a nap right now, all right? So you bear with me. Mark chapter 5. Let me just give a little bit of an intro into the chapter, and then we're going to tackle the three characters that we find in here. If you go back to Mark chapter 4, you're going to see Jesus as um, someone who is teaching along the way. So Jesus is teaching around the Sea of Galilee. So if this was my hand, by the way, if if you're not signed up to go to to Israel in April with us as a church, there's still room. You come on. Uh, It Truly, I was in Israel this past year to see our son Jordan over there, and it, it just brings the Bible to life. So when you talk about where Jesus is ministering, you, I was there. I was actually saw it. So if my hand is the Sea of Galilee, what you'll have, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee up here um, is Capernaum, and that's where Jesus' hometown is. It's where Peter lived. And it's kind of an oblong egg shape, if you will. On the, on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee is where a lot of Jesus' ministry took place. It was more populated than on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And so the story begins in chapter 4 of Jesus being on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's teaching the masses who have gathered. So Jesus' ministry is beginning to, get, uh, to gather steam. It's, it's, there's momentum in his ministry. Word is getting out. That here's, here's a, they considered him just a great prophet at the time. Here's this prophet who is healing the sick, and, and he's doing these miraculous things, and people are gathering, want to see, they're, they're, they're curious about who this man Jesus is. So these crowds are gathering, and Jesus is teaching them. He also takes the opportunity in chapter 4 to really kind of teach his disciples. And you've got to remember, these disciples are going to be with him about two and a half years. In those two and a half years, Jesus do his best to take some hard-headed folks, All right, most of them were fishermen. And I don't know about you, but I've met a few fishermen in my life, and they can be hard-headed along the way, all right? And he's trying to take these, these men that he has gathered and to shape them into this machine, if you will, because we know in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is going to ascend into heaven. And the, one of the last things he does, he looks at his disciples and he commissions them that they would be his witnesses into the rest of the world. And so Jesus takes this time to really impact the disciples' lives. So everything Jesus does has purpose to it. And that's what we find here in Matthew and Mark chapter 4 is Jesus at the end of that chapter, he's, ta- he's teaching his disciples these parables and Jesus is exhausted, all right? He's done his teaching all day and he's exhausted. I know how he feels. And he wants some rest. So he's going to go on the other side of the Sea of Galilee to find rest. So he gets into the boat with the disciples at the end of chapter 4 and the storm comes up on the sea. Well, I mean, it's a raging storm, and I don't know who, how tall the waves were and stuff like that, but we do know it happens a lot on the Sea of Galilee where it's located. And all they know, the disciples, there's Jesus. He's in a part of the boat, and he's just asleep, right? He's just, he's out. One of the things that tells me that Jesus, it, 
There was this human side of Jesus that sometimes I think we forget. He was fully God, but he was also fully man. And the man side of Jesus got exhausted. He was literally exhausted. In the midst of the storm, he's just asleep. He's wiped out. Just totally, it's not that he's ignoring everything. He, just the human side of, of Jesus, he's wiped out. And we know that the disciples wake him, they're fearing, and Jesus talks to the storm as if it was his child, literally. Hey, be still. And the storm ceases. So these disciples are learning as they go, and they get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and that's where we begin in chapter 5. And we see three characters um, that Mark describes in this chapter, and we're going to tackle all three of those, and then I'm going to have some, just a some few points as we get done today. The first character, let's go to, to verse 2 of chapter 5. It says, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So get the picture here. This isn't any ordinary man who's been possessed. This is different. Mark describes some other men in the, in the book of Mark that Jesus cast demons out, but none of them are like this. This man was possessed by many demons. In fact, when Jesus asked him what his name was, he says, my name is Legion. Well, a Roman legion, if you will, back in the day, those soldiers, it was about 6,000 in number. And we also know that, as the story goes, that Jesus cast the demons out into the swine who then run down the hill into the Sea of Galilee, and there was a couple thousand. So we know that there is hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of demons that possess this man. So it's not just a man who has a demon who's possessed him. This is unique. It's different. He lived in the tombs among the dead. He had superhuman strength that, controlled, that was controlled by the possession of all these demons. He was isolated and he was feared by man. No one wanted anything to do with this madman. He was a cast out. He was outcast. He was put in this place, really left to die. So I can only imagine that the disciples, when they got out of the boat, thinking that we're going to have this time of rest and relaxation, here comes this madman out of the hills, out of the tombs, charging at them. And I imagine these disciples looked at Jesus, who I'm sure was very calm, because Jesus had control, right? Jesus had control. And we come to verse 6 of this chapter. It says, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran... This demon-possessed man, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? He recognized that Jesus was the true son of God. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Christ... When he came to this earth, he came to rescue our souls from the grip of Satan's power. He saves the living from among the dead. In fact, the design of Jesus' gospel is to expel the unclean spirits out of the souls of people. That's what he does. So when you were born, you were born with this sin nature that you had. Nobody had to teach you how to lie. Nobody had to teach you how to take grandma's quarter that she left on the counter Nobody had to do that. You were born with this nature inside of you that wanted to rebel against the holy God. Jesus came 
to cast that out of us, if you will. We were all born with that spirit that wants to steal, kill, and destroy your life, John 10.10. So an unclean spirit basically is one that wants sin to be the master of your life. That's what an unclean spirit does. That's what the spirit did with this man. It wants sin to be master of your life, to be contrary to God. Jesus wants the opposite. He wants you to be righteous before a holy God. In fact, it said in Romans 6.14, it says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. So this unclean spirit wants sin to be master of your life, but it also wants eternal death over eternal life. What does Paul say in Rome? He says the wages of sin is what? It's death. It's this eternal separation from a holy God to a sinful man. It's this separation that takes place. There's a physical death that's going to take place, but there's also there's a spiritual death that takes place. For the wages, wages of sin is death. An unclean spirit that we have within us wants eternal death over eternal life. John 17, 3 says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And the first verse I ever memorized, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That word so in the original Greek Greek language describes the manner in which God is going to love you. Not that just God is going to love you, but he's going to love you by sacrificing his only son for you. So an unclean spirit in us, when we're born with this spirit that says, I want to rebel against God, it wants eternal death. Satan doesn't want you to live for Jesus. It doesn't want you to have eternal life. God says, I will give you eternal life by giving you my son. I heard this not long ago. In fact, it was this year at uh, Kevin Derryberry's golf tournament. And Rick Burgess shared a short devotional before we all hit the links. Part of that was make sure that we're not going to cheat, all right? Okay, let's have a short devotional so none of you all are cheating your scorecards. But he said something that was profound that has stuck with me. And this is what he said. He read this verse, James 2. 19, he says, you believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that, and they shudder, and they are afraid. And Rick Burgess said this, he says, either you have a demon faith, and one of you may say, well, what is a demon faith, Rick? Well, a demon faith is one that the demons, they believe that Jesus was who he says he is, all right? They know who Jesus is. In fact, this man that had the demon with the side of him, he had no clue that Jesus was truly the Son of God. The demons inside that man knew that Jesus truly was the Son of God. They knew. But even though those demons knew that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus was going to go to the cross and die, that Jesus was going to be who he says he is, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, they aren't going to be in heaven, right? They're not going to be in heaven. Even though they know up here In their minds, that's true. They have this demon faith. And Rick said, either you have this demon faith or you have a Jesus faith. There's no in between. You either have a demon faith or you have a Jesus faith. In this story, in this story, Jesus cast out the demon faith and gave the man a Jesus faith. You know what we call that? We call that salvation. 
We call that a new heart. He needed a new heart. Jesus gave him a new heart. So we had the first man that was described, the demon-possessed man who needed a new heart. The second person we come across here is one who needed a new hope. Now this woman, you can find um, in verses 24 and following. I won't read the whole passage. We won't have time for that. But let me give you kind of a brief picture of it, and I'll share a couple verses from this passage. So here's Jesus. He, he gets out of the boat. He deals with this demon-possessed man. He kind of goes, okay, I've had enough of my rest and relaxation, my R&R. Okay, let's get back in the boat. Let's go to the other side of the lake. So he goes back to the other side of the lake, and of course, people gather because Jesus is Jesus. His following, people are wanting to know who this guy is. So people gather around him. And during that time, there was a woman who had been who had been bleeding for years and years and years. In fact, the scripture tells us that she spent all she had with doctors trying to figure out how she'd be cured. She was incurable. She wasn't going to get better. And her only hope that she had, and she needed a new hope, was this person called Jesus, who she had a faith in. So I can just imagine this picture. And by the way, because of her bleeding, she was unclean. So probably theologians feel like maybe she wasn't recognized in that region. She went to another region to see Jesus. Because if people had recognized her, they would have told her to be away. Because to touch her would be make yourself unclean. So I can picture this woman who was desperate. She was at wit's end. She had no more hope other than this man, Jesus, who she had heard about. And I can just picture her, her, the throngs of people around Jesus as he was making his way to Jairus' house where his daughter was dying. And I can just see her on her knees crawling and maybe between the legs of people. She grabbed the hem of his coat. And that instant, she was healed from that infirmity that she was dealing with. She was healed from that infirmity in that instant. And this is what Jesus said to her in verse 34. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Now, that picture of your faith literally means the conviction that you have about your faith in me. It's your conviction of your faith has healed you. And go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And the Greek translate that word suffering into the word scourging. Remember when Jesus was going to the cross and they grabbed that, that cat, of nine, uh, cat of nine tails and had glass and pieces of rock in it and they whipped Jesus' back toward his back and his flesh were tore open before he went to the cross? Jesus is telling this woman, listen, you've been freed from this scourging that's been plaguing you. You have freedom in this. Go in peace. Go in peace. I can only imagine what she must have felt during that time that the savior of the world, the one she had faith in. And by the way, that word daughter there, Jesus addresses her as daughter. That's the only place in the gospels that we read where Jesus addressed anyone in the term daughter. She was in the family. He was, she was in his family because of her faith that she had. She was someone who needed a new hope. And who doesn't need a restored hope in our lives. First Peter 1.3 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us this new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is only in Jesus Christ, only in him, that we can have this kind of resurrected hope, a new hope. And then thirdly, the last character that we're going to read about in this passage, and then I've got some life lessons 
that I'm going to share is the one who needed a new perspective. So here's Jarius. He's been interrupted by this woman. And Jarius has a daughter who's 12 years old who's dying. And while Jesus is dealing with this woman and, and consoling her and giving her encouragement, these people come and they let Jarius know that it's too late, that, that his daughter has already passed away. And I can imagine what maybe Jarius felt, that his daughter, his gut must have been wrenched to hear those words that it's too late, your daughter is dead. And this is what Jesus said to Jarius in verse 36. He said, don't be afraid. So he's looking at Jarius in the eye. Jarius has just got these, this news. His daughter has passed away. And I can only imagine what that would have felt like. And maybe somebody in here has had that news before that you had a, a daughter or a son who had passed away. But imagine his gut was just rinsed. And Jesus looks Jarius in the eye and he says this, these words, don't be afraid, just believe. Literally, what he was saying was, stop fearing, keep believing. Stop fearing, Jarius, and you keep believing. You know, I've stared at this, this chapter quite a bit over the last several months. And I've asked myself, really, who was the miracle for? Who needed the new perspective? Who was this miracle for? We know that this little girl now had a new life, but Paul will say to die is what? To die is gain. To see Jesus face to face is better than living on this earth. So to die is gain. Could it possibly be that by giving this girl new life, Jesus was shaping a new perspective in the minds and hearts of everyone who would eventually come in contact with this little girl or hear her story. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus knew that there was going to come a point in time, which he did know, that persecution for the Christian faith was imminent. It was going to happen. And maybe, just maybe, that people had to have a new perspective, fellow believers, followers of Jesus, that Jesus is who he says he is. And they needed a new perspective. See, I think many times we need a new perspective in life. Listen, I, I, know, I know some of y'all's story in this room. I've been around a long time. I know some of you have buried loved ones prematurely. I know that some of you in here are dealing with cancer. You got that news. You go to the doctor. You know something wrong. And the doctor walks in and his words are, I got bad news. I got bad news. And you're just, you're, you're, you sink. I know that. And there's no easy way sometimes to walk that path that you have to, you have to walk. But these words that Jesus shared with Jarius keep coming to my mind. Stop fearing, Rick. Keep believing. Stop fearing and keep believing. James 1 12 says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Stop fearing, keep believing. Romans 8, 37, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Rick, stop fearing and keep believing. All these folks in this passage of scripture, one needed a 
changed heart, one needed a changed hope, and one needed a new perspective. But here's one thing. All those things add up to a changed life. If you're in Christ and your life, if you're in Christ, your life has to have changed, right? If your life has not changed, can I be so bold as to say, maybe you're not in Christ? If your life hasn't changed, and by knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior, are you really in Christ? Are you really there in Christ? Here's three lessons to be learned from this passage. Number one, desperation always precedes deliverance. Desperation always precedes deliverance. You know, it's amazing that when we go through hard times, and, and listen, I'm not dealing with cancer I'm not being persecuted with my faith. But you all deal with life, right? It weighs upon you. Some of you have lost a job and it weighs upon you. How are we going to pay our bills? It weighs upon you in life. We walk through life that way and sometimes we can't run from it. You just have to face it along the way. And sometimes when those things happen, it's amazing that those are the times that we feel closest to the Lord because we are constantly on our knees seeking his face. I remember when Linda and I first got married, we had nothing, right? I was raising support for playing basketball. I'd left the NBA, and, and I said, okay, man, okay, Lord, whatever you want for me to do, I'll do. And so he says, hey, Rick, you're going to play for this Christian basketball team. You're going to tour the world. You're going to share your faith. You're going to be an evangelist along the way. Okay, great, cool. Hey, Linda, we're going to have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for the next week. We raise support. But you know what? I don't know, Linda will say this too, my wife. It was some of the most precious times we've ever had. We had nothing, but we had everything. Stop fearing. Keep believing. Desperation always precedes deliverance. There was a man that I got to know, and God gave me the, the, the fortune of actually leading him to the Lord. His name was Tony. It's back in Memphis, Tennessee, and there's a naval air station right there outside of Memphis, and, and he was a Navy guy, and we had a gymnasium there at our church, at Ridgeway Baptist Church, and every day at lunchtime, Monday through Thursday, I kind of organized just some basketball, so guys would come, and we'd play basketball during the lunch hour, and Tony would come. He, he heard about it. I can't remember how he heard about it, to be honest with you, so many years ago, but he heard about this, hey, let's go play basketball, and, and Tony was a Navy guy. And he was tattooed all over his body when, when really you went and looked at somebody with tattoo, you kind of went, <gasps> you know? I mean, he had tattoos everywhere. His kneecaps had tattoos on him. I go, man, what are you doing, man? Kneecaps had got ta tattoos on him. What are you doing? He, he cussed like a sailor. I mean, he cussed all the time. Every time down the floor, I'm going, hey, Tony, man, stop. Time out. <laughs> it's the place of God. You know, I know it's a gym, but hey, okay, <laughs> tone it down. His wife had divorced him because he was an alcoholic. And took his child with her. And he was angry with the world. And sometimes when, you, when I talked to him just in casual conversation before God broke his heart, he didn't even know why he was angry with the world. He just, he just felt like he got dealt a bad set of cards. And he blamed everybody. Well, as time went on, at the middle of the lunch hour, we were playing basketball. I'd stop it all and I'd gather everybody together. Everybody who was waiting to play and everybody who had been playing, we gathered at the center court. And I'd do a little five-minute devotional. 
Or I'd have somebody share their testimony how Jesus changed their life. And over the weeks, Tony's heart began to soften. Now, he still cussed like a sailor sometimes. I got, <laughs> I'd be chasing him down the floors, man. He's got to stop, man. He's got to stop. I'll never forget the day. It was a Wednesday. We just got done playing. And Tony was mad because my team just beat his team, right? And uh, so he's sitting on the bench next to the wall. So I go sit next to him. And the Holy Spirit just led me to do this. And I just looked at Tony, and you could just see this in his life. He just, he was desperate for something in his life. I said, Tony, can I ask you a personal question? He looked at me and says, yeah. I said, if you were to die today, on the way home from this, on the way back to work, if you were to die in a car accident, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? Would you go to hell? And without hesitating, I mean, he never even thought about it. He looked me straight in the eye. He says, I'd crash through hell head first. I'd be in hell. And I said, Tony, is that where you want to be? He goes, no. I said, where do you want to be? He says, in heaven. So in those moments, I led Tony to the Lord. Tony was desperate for something to change in his life. And the cool thing was, two weeks later, I got to baptize Tony in front of everybody. Everybody heard him swear all the time, okay? I got to baptize this guy. Tony was desperate. Because he was desperate, it leaded to deliverance in his life. You know, it's amazing in this, in this passage of Scripture in chapter 5 and verse 6, we see the, the demon come and he fell on his knees in front of God. Of Jesus. In verse 22, we see the synagogue ruler named Jairus. He came and he fell at his feet before Jesus. We see in verse 33, the woman, she came and she fell at his feet before Jesus. Desperation always leads to deliverance. Number two, God honors a risk-taking faith. What is it God is asking you to overcome that is so big that only it could come from him? For it to happen, it can only come from him. What is it that's so big in your life that the only thing that can happen is a miracle from God himself? Is it sickness? Is it addiction? Is it a broken marriage? Is it a job? Is it a family issues that you're dealing with? What is it that's so big that for it to happen and come and be settled, it could only come from him? I love the story of David and Goliath. You all remember that story? 1 Samuel 17? We always think of, the, of, of David as the underdog, Right? So we always hear these stories of the underdog. And, you know, I've done it. I've, I've spoken to football teams before. And, you know, you're going against the big mighty giant of Hoover. And here we are. And we're the underdog. Listen, I, I want to I tell you something. David. David was not the underdog. Y'all hear me? He was not the underdog. So here's Goliath. He comes. David comes running towards him. And, and, and Goliath says all these things that he's going to do to David. Basically, he's just going to, he's going to kill him. And then David said this in verse 45 of 1 Samuel 17. He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. David went to a knife fight with a rock and his God. A rock and his God. And by the way, it wasn't a fair fight. It wasn't a fair fight. Goliath had no chance. He had no chance. None. Zero. David went with a risk-taking faith, and he took down Goliath with a rock and a faith in his holy God. 
First Thessalonians says this, the one who calls you is faithful. I want you to know today, Jesus will do the heavy lifting in your life. You do not have to go through this alone. Jesus will do the heavy lifting. So God honors a risk-taking faith, but also Jesus' power and ministry in your life. It is personal. And this is the most personal thing to me. This, this is the one that sticks to me. So here's Jesus. He's busy. He's been healing folks. He's got to go to Jerry's house, and he's got to, to raise this girl from the dead. And in verse 32, this is what happens of chapter 5. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Who was this woman? Who actually touched his garment? Because Jesus knew something had happened. This power had gone out from him. So he kept looking to see who had done it, to see who had touched his garment and had the kind of faith to be healed. The kind of faith to be healed. So here's Jesus in his busyness of his day. He is exhausted. He's tired. And he's got to leave this place and he's going to go to this other house where this girl has died. And he takes the time, y'all. He takes the time to make it personal. He seeks this woman out. You know why? Because he wanted to make sure that she understood that it wasn't There wasn't this magic that took place by touching his garment. It was her continued and convicted faith that she had in him that made her whole. Jesus wanted her to know that, for her to have this peace of knowing that. Jesus' power and ministry in your life, it is personal. Joshua 1, 9 says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He says, stop fearing, keep believing. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Quit fearing, Rick. Keep believing. Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Stop fearing. Keep believing. You know, I interrupted worship to share this verse, but it's such a comforting verse for those that need a touch that we see here in Mark chapter 5. And it's there in Matthew 11, I read earlier. And it comes from the lips of Jesus when he says, Come to me, not the things of this world, but come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't that where we should be, y'all? We should be in the presence of Jesus where we can feel that over and over and over again. We don't need another therapy session. We need a cleansing. We don't need excuses. We need repentance. And we don't need anything this world has. We need a Savior.